So page 1029, Revelation 3 and verse 1, the letter to the church in Sardis. Let me pray for us as we begin. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Our Father God, as we come to your word now, as we hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking uh, by his spirit through his word, we pray that we would not trust in anything other than you, uh, your name, your goodness, your power, your mercy, your gospel. Uh, We don't want to trust in our intellect to try and understand and pull apart a passage, but ultimately in your spirit to do us good. And so come and bless us through your word, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Revelation 3 and verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not sold their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Uh, The city of Sardis thought it was impregnable. Uh, it was apparently high up on a rock, uh, looking over some, uh, some roads. Uh, and the only way to conquer it was from those roads at the bottom. Uh, and so throughout their long history, they stationed a guard at the front and were absolutely certain that no one could ever take their fortress. Until, until Cyrus, a great King Cyrus, of the Medes and Persians, sent his men scrambling up the back, up the cliffs, to where there were no guards. No one would climb the cliffs. No one would attack that way. The city wasn't watching. The troops came over, and the city fell. Uh, Sardis was a seemingly undefeatable city, a mighty fortress. Nothing could go wrong with the city of Sardis. And so they went to sleep, and they fell. Something very similar is going on in the church in Sardis. Uh, This letter, in many ways, is a wake-up call. Uh, One of my friends called it a a fierce invitation to come home to Jesus. Uh, The church is, is, is hardly commended for anything. As you read through these seven letters, very often that the pattern is similar. Jesus introduces himself, and then he'll say something the church is doing well. Perhaps their doctrine is good, but they, they lack a bit of zeal. Or, or perhaps they're full of zeal, but, but their doctrine has gone all over the place. Here, well, there's almost nothing. The church has begun to resemble the city. Smug, sleepy, dying, 
dead even. And therefore, it's a really uncomfortable letter for us to hear this morning. But it is in God's word. It is from the mouth of the Lord Jesus via the Spirit. See how it begins with a description of Jesus, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars we read in chapter one represent the churches. Uh, The one who holds them in his hands is the Lord Jesus. And right at the end, verse six, he who is near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Really important that, by the way. Who wrote the letter? Was it Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Who are you hearing as the letter is read to you? Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Both. As Jesus speaks, he does so by the Spirit. As the Spirit speaks, he does through through the words of Jesus. And sometimes Jesus does speak hard words to us, to his church. Now it is true, of course, that any one congregation like Christchurch Central or Redeemer or Emmanuel Baptist or Mosaic or any other church you've ever been to, any one church is not going to be exactly the same as every single one of these seven churches represented in the book of Revelation. I mean, by definition, they couldn't be. You know, one is doctrinally rich but lacking in love. The next one is full of love but has no doctrine. No church could be both of those things. But there is a completeness, a reason for the seven letters, or rather there being seven letters. And that is that that seven in the the Bible represents kind of completeness. The world was made in seven days, for example. And so as we go through this kind of diagnosis of all seven churches in Asia Minor, in Turkey, as we call it today, there, there will be things, there should be things that speak to us as a congregation, not that we have to decide that we are Ephesus or Laodicea or Thyatira or Sardis, but but rather that we need to hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us and wake up where needs be. So let's look at the problem first uh, in in, uh, Sardis. Children, think of of Jesus as a doctor, if you like. We'll look at the problem, what's wrong. We're going to think about the prescription. What does Dr. Jesus prescribe? A prescription is the kind of medicine that he sends. And they'll see what he promises as a result. What's the problem? Verse one, do you see? I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, yet you are dead. Ask Christians in Pergamum or Laodicea or Ephesus, what do you think of the church in Sardis? Oh, that is the place to be. I mean, I've got to stay in Laodicea because that's where I live. My business is here, my family is here, but my life, wouldn't it be great to be part of the church in Sardis? They have a fantastic reputation. We don't know why. Maybe they were large. It's easy to think large churches must be healthy. Maybe they had significant members. Maybe some of the town elite had become part of uh, the Christian community. Uh, Maybe they had well-known teachers or writers or theologians. Maybe they'd send out many missionaries. Who knows? But they have a great reputation. And yet, and yet Jesus sees the truth. He sees behind this and says, you are dead. Imagine being in the congregation at Sardis when that letter arrived. You are dead. Children, have you ever seen mummies in museums, the Egyptian mummies? On the outside, they're beautiful, aren't they? The gold and the blue paints, absolutely stunning. And that's what you see in the museum, the case. What you don't see is what's inside. A dead body rotting away. Well, here Jesus looks through Sardis, looks through the outward signs and sees underneath 
or sees the corpse. Why? What's wrong? Let's, let's look a bit more closely. Verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains in you and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Your works are not complete, says Jesus. Now that can't mean your obedience, your living for me, is not perfect. Because it never is. All Christians are people who still have sin that remains within. You will never live a perfect life. In fact, you will never even do one thing that is totally perfect. So it can't mean that. But he does give some clues as to what it might mean. First of all, is the command, wake up. That suggests, doesn't it, that the, Christ, that the, the church inside us has become sleepy. They are drowsily drifting off to sleep. Like someone who's had a few too many drinks on a sunny uh, summer's afternoon in the heat and is just nodding off. It's possible to become like, in the Christian, like that in the Christian life, isn't it? It's never a moment where we say, right, that's it, I've had it, I'm going to stop following Jesus, I'm going to stop bothering with prayer, I'm going to ignore my Bible, I'm going to stop going to church. It's just a slow nodding off. We're drowsy, drifting, dozy, like a little rowing boat on, on, the, on the lake where the, the rope has been cut and slowly the tide has drifted us out and out and out. We never decided to run, but we've just drifted. We've fallen asleep. Oh, the Christian Sardis would have still been at events, turned up to services, made your prayer meeting maybe. Uh, there was enough gold and blue paint on the outside of the mummy to make them look impressive still, but on the inside, the bones were rotting. So much so, again, verse 2, that they are about to die, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, in some ways, that's actually, having just read the, the verse before, that's actually good news. The initial diagnosis is you're dead, and then that is somewhat softened. You are dying. You're about to die. It's not good news in and of itself, but it's better than being totally dead. But they are fading, perishing, wasting away. In other words, their Christian life, their faith, their hope, their love is slowly getting smaller, weaker. Downwards, not upwards. It's a bit like a plant. Have you ever tried to grow a plant like a sunflower? When I was little, we had a, um, in our village, we had a little sunflower growing competition. Uh, what makes a sunflower grow tall? You've got to keep feeding it, haven't you? You've got to keep watering it. And plants, they either, I'm no botanist, I'm no gardener, but I know just about to know they're either growing or they're dying. Okay? There's no sort of just staying still. They're always bearing new fruit, aren't they? Or getting taller or growing new leaves. And it's like that with the Christian life. We're, not, we're never finished, just like a plant's never finished. There's always more growth. And, but neither are we ever meant to be static, still less declining. They're sleepy, they're dying. And then there's another clue in verse 4. Yet you still have a few names inside us, people who have not sold their garments. I to soil, John, is to, to, to make dirty. Imagine you go out to play in a, a muddy field, you're wearing white, a white t-shirt and, and white shorts. If you come back spattered in mud, you've soiled your clothes, your garments. 
Now, some haven't done that. We'll come back to that. But, but some obviously have. That seems to be, again, a description of what's going wrong in the church. And it's obviously not about how they dress and how they behave in muddy parks, but, but about how they, their life is beginning to look much more like the world. Christians are meant to have righteous lives, meant to be like we're dressed in white. But increasingly, the, the church in Sardis, there is no difference. As you look at your life, if someone didn't see you walk through the door on a Sunday morning, and they just shadowed you, kind of big brother style, watched you morning, evening, night. Would they be able to tell that you are different from your housemate or different from your neighbours? Is there anything significantly different in how you use your money, your time? I just come back with me uh, to the book of 2 Timothy. I think this is a helpful parallel. Two Timothys, um, page 996. And Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 3, page 996. Paul is writing to Timothy, this minister who's going to keep up the work. Actually in Ephesus that, that Paul began. And he just tells Timothy, he warns Timothy that, that actually church leadership in the last days is going to be hard. Verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days, which means the time between Jesus going back to heaven and his returning to earth. So we are in the last days now. There will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers. If I just stop there. Do you know what's going to be really hard, Timothy? People are going to be full of love. That's what's going to make life hard. Because look what they love. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than loves of God. And here's the punch, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So you think as he, as he goes through that list, you, you think, ah, oh, yeah, look out there at the world, all those horrible people. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who have an appearance of godliness. They'll turn up to church, sing some songs, but actually their life is driven by a love of money, self, power. That is Sardis, I think. And of course, the big question for us this morning is, is this us? As we go through the letters, that we always need to be asking that, is this us? Is this you? Churches have corporate characteristics, certainly. That's why Jesus writes to churches. These aren't lots of letters to lots of individuals. But equally, churches are made up of lots of individuals. And the thing is, Jesus does know. I I, I don't know. The person sitting next to you doesn't know. Maybe your wife or husband doesn't know. Although often our spouses know a lot more about us than, than we do if we're married. But Jesus does know. He sees I know your works, he begins the letter. Jesus doesn't know you. There's no hiding from his x-ray vision. So is he saying to you this morning, wake up? Now this isn't meant to crush everybody in the congregation by any means. And there's also a bit of a dynamic that those, those who are sleepy don't hear because they're asleep. And those who actually are awake and are trying to live for Jesus but have a really tender conscience get kind of totally crushed by this and, and plunge off into despair. We'll see there's loads of good news here. 
But still we must hear the warning, is it you? Would you have been at home in Sardis? That's the problem. But there is hope. Secondly, the prescription, the cure, children. This is what Jesus is going to do or inviting the, the Christians of Sardis to remember. And, and, and straight away, it's amazing that, that he is bothered about them, isn't it? He is not simply saying, ha, huh, there's a load of sleepy Christians. Let's just let them die. Father God, you know, they're not, they've not tried hard enough. Let them go. Let them go. He cares enough to warn them. Again, that is a good thing. That is a good thing that he wants to warn the Christians to wake up. It shows his love. Uh, Jesus has a heart for Egyptian mummy Christians just as much as he does for those who are still totally outside the church. Sometimes when you've been in church for a while, you, begin, you can begin to think, well, of course Jesus would forgive that the tax collectors and the prostitutes or the modern-day equivalents. But, but me, a, a kind of pharisaical heart, a sleepy Christian, me, I... I should know better. I should be doing a bit better. And Jesus says, no, I've still got grace for you too. Children, I said earlier, Jesus is a bit like a doctor in these letters. But what would you think of a doctor who, who walked in, if you were in hospital, walked in and said, oh, I see the problem with you. That there's a problem, a problem with your lungs, a problem with your breathing. There's a, a little sort of disease growing on your lungs. And that is the problem. And all the junior doctors and the nurses, that's very good, thank you, doctor, that's great diagnosis. And he says, thanks very much, and then walks out the room. That's no use, is it? A doctor's job isn't just to say, that's the problem. A good doctor also gives you the medicine, tells you the cure. And that's what Jesus does. And do you see what the cure is, verse three? Remember. What did you expect him to say? If you heard the diagnosis, you're sleepy. You're dying. If we had to write the second half of the letter, imagine the, the church Bibles had all been ripped out after verse two. And we had to, I wonder what Jesus would have said. I suspect many of us would have finished the letter like this. You're sleepy. You're dying. You're becoming like the world. Try harder. Sort yourself out. Then come back to me. I'll hear from you when you're making an effort. That's not what he says. Remember, verse 3, what you received and heard. What is it they received and heard? Well, they received and heard the gospel. Remember the gospel, Jesus says to them. That is what they've forgotten. That's why they've become sleepy and dying. Because the gospel message has just drifted away from them. Perhaps they thought the gospel is the message that, that brings people into the kingdom, but then you can forget about it. Again, so easy for us Christians to think like that. It's the, the message that you give out in tracts. It's the message you speak at university mission weeks. But then if I want to grow as a Christian, the, the gospel, it's, it's either not for me, or it's too simple, or, or it's too basic, or, or I, I need more, or remember, says Jesus, the gospel. Remember that message. That is what will give you life. That is what will make the plant stop withering. It's the food, the water that will bring it to life. It is the medicine that will turn the mummy from skin and bones to a living being again. Remember the grace that I offered you. In other words, Jesus isn't saying cure yourself. He's saying come back to me. I am the one in whom there is life. I died in order, not that you would drift to death, but in order that you might grow and grow and grow to eternal life. In other words, what Jesus is doing in heaven now in Sardis 
and God willing in heaven now in Christchurch Central is exactly what he did when he went to Jairus' daughter. Do you remember the story of John? Do you remember the story of Jairus' daughter? He was a synagogue ruler and his poor daughter had got ill and Jairus rushed to Jesus and said, my daughter is dying. She's on her way out. Come. And he knew that the doctors weren't going to be able to do anything. He knew that no one could save her. And so he went to Jesus, please. And Jesus said, of course. And he went towards Jairus. But they were distracted en route. And by the time he got to Jairus' house, the daughter was dead. And Jesus said, don't cry. Touched her, lifted her up. Said, little girl, arise. And she did. The life, the power was in Jesus. Not in the little girl, she was dead. But in Jesus. And so too now, if you are a dying Christian, if you feel yourself sleeping, then Jesus does say, wake up. It is dangerous. I'm not trying to soft pedal the warning in any way. But the way you wake up is not by staying away from Jesus until you've sorted yourself out, but by going to him and saying, Lord, this is me. This morning, you have put your finger on my heart. I see myself in that Egyptian mummy, that withering plant. I know it is dangerous. I know I'm becoming like the world. I know, frankly, my prayer life is non-existent. Help me and wake me up. Go back to the gospel where there is the incredible welcome of God in Christ. He will turn no one away. Go back to the gospel where you see there is full atonement made for your sins. 100%. Nothing you may need to bring. Go back to the gospel where it's that, that gracious invitation that you receive by faith, not by works. The whole Christian life then is by faith, not by works. You don't start by faith and go on by uh, grit. You keep going back to Jesus Give me mercy today, Lord Jesus. And he will. So remember verse three. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it. That isn't, I don't think, the sense of keep it like keep the law. um, But rather keep it like guard it. Hold on to it. And repent. Do you want to know what repentance is? It's not quite just saying sorry, although it involves that. But but it's, it's, it's a turning of the mind around. Saying, no, look, I... That was me, Lord Jesus. I could see I was walking in that direction of falling asleep, of dying. I am like a, a I don't know, what I, a Sardisian Christian. But I want to turn and come back to you. Repentance is that turning round. But you'll only turn if you know that you'll be, receive a welcome. In other words, as you remember the gospel, remember the remember comes first and then the repent. Until you know that God will welcome you, even as a mummified Christian, you'll never turn and go back to him. But the good news, I can assure you this morning, is he will welcome you. So do wake up. Do turn back. Go to him now. He may not give you another invitation. He's not obliged to keep going. We can't say to Jesus, next week, mañana, 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 another time. And this is how you wake up. So Jesus, come to me. And as you come to him, who are you coming to? Do you see verse one? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Why has Jesus got the seven spirits of God? Well, it's part of Revelation. Revelation is full of strange imagery. Full of strange imagery. But the seven spirits of God, I think are meant to represent the Holy Spirit. If you flick over the page... Uh, chapter 5, sorry, uh, yep, chapter 5, 
and you see a picture of Jesus between the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's Jesus with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The spirit goes out into all the earth. Remember, seven is a picture of completion. It's as if the spirit sent by Jesus goes out into all the earth. What spirit is sent by Jesus into all the earth? Holy Spirit. It's there in chapter four, verse five uh, as well. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, again, it's just imagery on imagery, isn't it? And, And revelation can get confusing. But the seven torches, seven flames, which John says they're the seven spirits of God. Now, the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit, represented by seven torches here, seven flames. Where are the seven flames burning? Well, if you've been here since the beginning, you'll know that when Jesus began writing to the seven churches, he described each one as if it was a lampstand, a candlestick. In other words, the spirit, the sevenfold spirit, if you like, is burning, is the life burning in the center of each of these seven churches. Look, if you totally lost me on the imagery there, I don't blame you. <laughs> Sometimes it, you, know, you can go around Revelation thousands of times and still be not entirely sure what all the pictures are. But the point is this. Jesus holds the Holy Spirit in his hand. How does he revive you? As you remember the gospel and he pours a spirit upon you. Uh, in the modern world, uh, we've got used to talking about charismatic churches and conservative churches. And what I think we tend to mean by that is something like charismatic churches sing more songs in a row, um, are more expressive bodily, might raise their hands and things, and particularly they, they speak in tongues and have prophecy. Conservative churches don't, <laughs> basically. Now, I am in no way going to get into the debates about prophecy and tongues this morning. Happy to talk about it, it is not the point. Um, there's a danger there. There's a real danger there. In fact, there's loads of dangers, but I'm only going to talk about one of them. But the danger is we think this church is therefore Holy Spirit filled and this one isn't. We, I'll just be upfront with you, we are not a charismatic church in that sense. Okay? I'd much rather we were more excited in our singing and you can stick your hands in the air, that'd be great, all the rest of it. But we are not a church in terms of we will not be having prophecy from the front and um, languages, foreign languages spoken. For various reasons, because I think the Bible says not to, park it. But we should not be a church that, that forgets about the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you hear it, but I, I talk about the Spirit quite a lot from the front. I will often introduce the reading by, let's hear what the Spirit has to say, for example. A friend of another church, um, uh, who'd be similar to us, and he, he remembers going along to a CU event and overhearing one of the students say to the others, oh yeah, um, that's a minister from, you know, St. Bob's Church, not the name. He's from the church that doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. He nearly fell off his chair. So of course we believe in the Holy Spirit. Just because we don't do those things doesn't mean we don't believe in the Spirit. We need to be a church that comes to Jesus and says, the thing I need from you more than anything else, Lord, is the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit comes through Christ. Remember, Jesus ascended at Pentecost. Oh, sorry, he ascended on Ascension Day. Then on the day of Pentecost, he poured out the Spirit. He received the Spirit and poured it out on the people. 
When you come back to Jesus, you're coming to the one, not only who could forgive you, but also who will give you the spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. It is a great prayer to keep praying. Lord, fill me all the more with your spirit. Jesus says, ask your father who knows how to good gifts, give good gifts, and he will give you the spirit. Paul says, keep on being filled with the spirit. In other words, beg for life from Christ. And he will give. He will give. That is the prescription. And it comes with a warning for end of verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The idea of Jesus coming like a thief, sometimes a thief in the night, is, is, is a pretty obvious, unexpected one. My children, burglars don't phone you up today and say, look, thinking about burgling your house this evening. Would that be okay? They come when you're not looking. Jesus is saying, here, not, I think, one day I'm going to return. He's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about coming to the church and, frankly, shutting them down. It's been a theme throughout these letters. If you don't, as a congregation, wake up, I will come and remove the lampstand, he says earlier. Jesus is not obliged to hold all judgment until the second coming, until the end of time. And again, that's why I say to you this morning, if we need to wake up as a church, now is the time to do it. If you need to wake up as an individual, now is the time to do it. Jesus is not obliged to warn you tomorrow or next week. Come to him today for that grace. Fathers, husbands, today is the day to wake up and begin to lead your family again. And you see the promise as we close. Verse 4 and uh, through 6. Uh, not all, not all are falling asleep. Again, that's encouraging, isn't it? It may be that there's a handful of you here this morning who think, do you know what? In all humility, I, th- I, think, I'm, I think I'm walking with Jesus. I wonder sometimes if I'm a bit more awake than, 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 than some others. And if that's you, then the answer is not to look down on everyone else, but, but to plead for the Lord to bring life to the rest of the church. I often think that the prayer meeting is the kind of the litmus test, the, the thermometer that, that, that measures the temperature of the church. Most of us will turn up on a Sunday. Prayer meeting, the week that I get to just stay in. It's not community group. I'm not going to get fed. I'm not going to get to chat so much with my friends. Oh, week off, great. What would an awake church look like? This week, this Wednesday evening. That's not a notice, by the way, because it's not happening this Wednesday evening. But this Wednesday evening, we get to go as a family before the Lord God and bring him everything. Pour out our hearts before him. And so wouldn't it be great if we had husbands heading home and saying, look, love, I know that it means you're going to have to put the kids to bed tonight, but I just can't miss it, can I? Or why don't I put the kids to bed so you can get out? I'll do it. You can go. People coming back from work saying to their housemates, look, I am exhausted, if I'm honest. It's been, a, it's been a long day. But my life tonight, we are going to, to meet with a living God and speak to him. There is nothing we need more. There is nothing we need more. I have just got to get there. And Jesus says he will answer. And to those who do wake up, you come to him for life, verse 5, you'll be clothed in white garments. That's the idea, I think, of on that last day 
uh, being accepted and welcomed, not as those who've lived dirty, filthy lives, although we have done that in so many ways, but being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The perfect life Jesus lived, treated as if it's ours, welcomed because of the gospel. I'll never blot out his name with the book of life. Revelation talks about these, these books, one of which is the book of life, the, the list of everybody who ends up in heaven. Secure, name written, and not just written but confessed. I, says Jesus, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That Jesus will say to God the father, she is mine. Jane, she is one of mine. Daniel, he is one of mine. Philip, he is one of mine. Those are the promises. Not to those who sort themselves out, but to those who will come, remember, repent, hold fast to the gospel, wake up. Not drift off to sleep, not wither and die, but come to Christ for life. Let's pray that's true of us as a congregation. Lord Jesus, these are are searching words. They are chilling words in many ways, but they are also words full of grace. Uh, They are a a fierce kind of invitation to come home. Uh, And so we uh, pray in your mercy uh, that you would wake us up. If as a church we're becoming sleepy and blind, wake us up. As individuals, again, wake us up. We come to you, the source of life, the one who is full of the spirit and who can pour that sevenfold spirit upon us and beg your mercy. Bless us, we pray. For your own name's sake. Amen.